Let freedom ring. Let freedom ring. Let freedom ring. Let freedom ring. This is Under the Tree, a seminar on freedom with Bill Ayers. Welcome to episode number 11 of our podcast, Under the Tree, where we gather together for a seminar on freedom. That was the artist and freedom fighter Tom Morello getting us started. Tom's one of those generous, inspiring lovers of humanity who always shows up, seemingly everywhere, whenever people come together and find a way to rise up for peace and love, joy and justice. We open each episode with a poem, our common practice, and our ritual announcement, the seminar is now in session. Today we have another poem from the legendary artist and freedom lover, Langston Hughes. The poem is Words Like Freedom. There are words like freedom, sweet and wonderful to say. On my heartstrings, freedom sings all day, every day. There are words like liberty that almost make me cry. If you had known what I know, you would know why. Langston Hughes, Words Like Freedom. We're altering the framework for today because we're at a milestone of sorts, a small milestone to be sure, but a milestone nonetheless, and therefore a kind of interlude, a time to reflect and recap, reimagine and rebuild. We have 10 episodes of Under the Tree live now, and we have a zillion more to come. Let's look back on where we've been. And men rejoice at being led like cattle again with the terrible gift of freedom that brought them so much suffering removed from them. You know, you you hear that and you say, what, wait, freedom is a terrible gift that brings suffering? I think our common understanding is that freedom's a universal aspiration something each of us and everyone we've ever known or ever heard about values and cherishes, a condition that equals happiness and peace of mind. Well, maybe and maybe not. Freedom also means taking responsibility. It means risk and precariousness and ambiguity. Listening to uh, folks in the classroom talk about you know, how all these great theories we're learning aren't really practical, and how you really learn to teach by going into the classroom and doing. And it made me wonder, what do we rely on when we think that experience is going to teach us everything? If you are coming at this job because you've been doing it the same way for 10 years, for 20 years, and that's just what you do, if you are not joyful, if you are not coming at this work from a place of pleasure, then there are lots of other confessions. Because we have babies who need people who enjoy this 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 opportunity, this essential work of teaching. You know, one thing I like to remind myself is that I think education really is about not um, sort of teaching us to fit into those stories. Um, education really should be about questioning those stories themselves. Um, so it's not about how do we succeed in the world as it is. Education to me is about how do we imagine that the world could be different. And if you feel so moved to then build your capacity to build that world, to move towards that world. Right? I think young people should reject the logic mm. of the prison and they should reject their dehumanization. Mm. But the problem is 
we set them up and give rules and compliance so when they reject their dehumanization, we now ostracize them in the extreme forms of suspensions and expulsions. We don't invest in, in access to food, so we know that there are nutritional issues, and, and, and we don't invest in getting rid of asbestos or lead paint from poor communities and housing projects. And so we, we don't, in, you know, we, we're unwilling to um, meaningfully take on the gun industry and, and stop the mass production and distribution of guns into poor neighborhoods. Full freedom is, is, a, is a racially inflected category. It is something white people, and not all white people, but only white people, can, can enjoy. And that is one of the legacies of slavery that we are still struggling with in this country. What is art and what's not art is something that has, is being contested every single day in museums and other sort of civic institutions. But then there's another sort of strand of people like Joseph Boys and other people who sort of say that everyone is an artist, that we all have this capacity to create. We have the capacity to unleash our radical imaginations. And you see this line of problems, and you can call it the school-to-prison pipeline, or you can call it any number of things, but regardless of whether we're talking about schools or mental health care or any of these other areas, the last stop is the criminal justice system. It's where society's inequities and inequalities and failings um, are dumped. As a nation, uh, we can't continue on this way that we've continued, particularly the last 30 years. Mm -hmm. There's a massive wage theft problem in this country. You know, conservative estimates put that at 50 or 100 billion dollars stolen by employers, mostly from low-income wage laborers. Um, this is never prosecuted by any of the thousands of DAs or U.S. attorneys all over the country. Um, wage theft dwarfs by a factor of about 10, depending on the low-end estimates, all other theft, robbery, burglary crimes combined in the U.S. And it's completely ignored by this quote-unquote law enforcement apparatus. And so this idea of the war being fought to end the institution of slavery, of course, was an evolving one. But the robust idea of freeing black people into a, a, a civil status equal to white people was something that was just too much, a horizon that was too far for even some very avid abolitionists. The point is that you have to understand the quote-unquote law enforcement quote-unquote, apparatus, as part of a larger bureaucracy that has very particular political, economic, and racial goals. And it only enforces um, certain laws to the extent it serves those goals. The world, the, the planet, cannot sustain this type of super-predatory capitalism. Mm -hmm. It can't be sustained. Yeah. Either we're going to change it, or we're all going to perish. And I always say, you know, in this world where there's so much unmaking and so much destruction, we really need to value the people who are makers, the people who are creators. And that's the artists, but also all of us, right? That sort of creative instinct in each of us. But freedom often feels abstract and distant, assumed but not available for active participation. Personal freedom, our self-proclaimed and celebrated rights and choices, our assumed autonomy, our assistant independence is a paradox. Free to drive anywhere, we find ourselves stuck in traffic. Free to speak our minds, we don't have that much to say. Free to choose, we feel oddly entangled. So, we're 10 episodes in. We are 10 episodes in and it's been an adventure. Yeah. It's been, you know what's been great about it for me is getting to know you. And honestly, it's been, I mean, I've learned a lot.
But one of the things I love about listening to you talk about it on the episodes, and I was thinking about it this morning, you always say, well, as an organizer, let me look at that from this direction. And I think that's so important. I mean, I can get lost in either just my enthusiasm of one thing or another. I can get lost in being an academic, being a writer. And it's just nice. You know, we're off into some deep conversation. And suddenly you say, but as an organizer, here's how I look at it. <laughs> I, I think that's that's critical. That's crucial. It's how, yeah, it's how I look at a lot. Of, yeah, a lot of the theoretical high-level uh, conversations, um, you know, they're excellent. They are the basis for the action that we need to take. But I'm, I'm always thinking about the action. There's, it's funny, you, you know Damon Williams. He's one of our uh, supervising producers. And I always make fun of him because he's always, his head is always, you know, a hundred stories above everyone else's. He's, he's thinking about the nuts and bolts, how things work, how things are moving. And sometimes, you know, you got to kind of just pull them down, pull them back down and say, what about tomorrow? What are we going to do? Well, I mean, you do that for me. And I think that, you know, we're talking about something as complicated as reparations or as abstract as how do you teach somebody to be a free person. And you'll say, well, as an organizer, this is the way I think about it. And I think at this moment in particular, it's very important that we understand that unless we're mobilizing people, unless we're reaching out to people, really, what is it all about? And that's really the organizer's ethos. And so I really appreciate that. How, when, when did you start thinking of yourself as that was your identity? I'm an organizer. Uh, probably after I attended my first organizer training. And how old were you? 22. Really, because you come from this political background, this political family. Right. But and really, you were a young adult when you came to that. Right. But, I, you know, I've always looked at myself as a leader and, and someone who uh, is interested in what people care about. Uh, and so, you know, mobilizing people along the lines of what they care about, that's what an organizer is. I remember when I was super young, I asked, I told my parents I wanted to be an activist when I grew up. And I was like, they were like, well, what does that mean? You know, just trying to test the... Right. And I was like, I, I don't know. I just, <laughs> you know, I want to give speeches. And, right. Uh, and so that idea kind of left my head for a while because I, did, I wasn't able to kind of concrete, concretely describe what, what that would be for me. You know, but... but but I think there's a distinction also that's worth making between an activist and an organizer. I think all organizers have to be activists, but all activists aren't organizers. And what I mean by that is that as an organizer, you're always thinking, all right, how do I mobilize that? Not just how do I get out in the world and perform, not only how do I stake my beliefs, but you're saying to yourself, how do I convince other people? How do I listen to them to understand where they're coming from? How do I speak to them? with the possibility of changing or mobilizing. I think that's a, a real that's a real important distinction. So I think of you as an organizer, and as I say, all organizers are activists, but it doesn't always work the other way. Mm -hmm. I think that's important. So over the past 10 episodes, you've done 10 interviews with colleagues of yours, um, scholars, activists, uh, Family long, members. Family members, long-time revolutionaries. Um, which which of those interviews did you learn the most from, you think, in this, this past season? You know, I learned from all of them, and I learned different things. I mean, I got to say, the one, one that really kind of surprised me was 
an interview with Bernadine Dorn, who's been my partner in crime um, and in activism and in organizing and in life um, for 50 years. And so we've talked for 50 years. We know each other. We've lived together for 50 years. But still, there were surprising things. You know, it was kind of fun to, to listen to her and to think of, you know, in a long life, it's still not on automatic pilot. And so we had fun goofing around with each other and so on. I learned from my son, Chesa, who's the district attorney in San Francisco now. I learned from him all the time. I have since he was 14 months old when we adopted him. But, you know, he's such a clear thinker about this. You can't throw Chesa off. You know, he really is a clear thinker about what what the criminal justice system is, why it's a mess, and and why it really should be done away with. He's very clear on that. So I learned from him. Those are my family members, but then two of my closest colleagues in education, David Stovall, Crystal Laura, I learned from them always because we've been partners in the education struggles for you know, 15, 20 years. And then of course there's Prexy Nesbitt, my oldest of the folks I interviewed, an internationalist, um, Africa support since he was 20 years old. Um, fighting for African liberation and African-American liberation. So all of them had something. And then let me slip it a, a, another minute and say, the other thing that, that happened is that I learned a lot about how to do this and myself. And I still feel like I'm just at the baby stage of it. I mean, I've been interviewed a thousand times, but when you're interviewing people, and I've even interviewed people for, for my work, but when you're conscious of the fact you're being recorded, and you're the one who has to keep the thing going. I find myself falling into some really stupid traps. Like what? Well, like like Q and A, Q and A. There's something on automatic pilot there. You're not listening. Yeah. If you're going on to the next question, you're not listening. And I found myself doing that, and it it would uh, irritate me. But hopefully, that irritation, that dissonance, leads to growth, not yeah. just to despair. You know. Yeah. There's a saying. Um, presence over preparation that's beautiful uh i don't know if i necessarily wholeheartedly agree with it but there are definitely moments in life where preparation does not offer the same outcomes as as presence and yeah. i will say it, it's 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 a thin line that you walk when you're interviewing folks because i, I remember when i started my podcast the re-up i had it in my mind that i'm never going to write down questions to ask these people because i want our conversation to be as conversation as conversational as possible um and you know sometimes that didn't quite work out sometimes it was mm. too hard to go in cold and, and try to you know try to build that rapport and, and that uh dialogue and other times you know it, it was it was great to go in to an interview with a person that you respect and, and are curious about uh and you know not to not to hold back, it's to, inter to interrupt when you want to, and sure. to, to be interrupted, to offer your own uh, thoughts and, and opinions. And I think you've done a really good job at, at giving uh, your perspectives on people's opinions. It's always, uh, it's always present. It doesn't seem like you're waiting to ask the next question. That's good, because uh, I'm, I'm, I'm struggling, and, I, and I'm, I hope I'm doing better and better. I want to do better. But, but I think that what you're saying, presence over preparation, you know, it's one of those things. It's a dialectic. You don't want to be unprepared. Right. You want to read the damn book that the person wrote, or you want to understand the speeches they give, or you want to 
know what their campaign is about. Mm -hmm. But at the same time, if you get stuck there, then you're just on, on as I say, on automatic pilot. You know, I, I don't know if you ever knew the, the um, young man named Lee Allen Jones. He did a, this is a long time ago, you were just a kid. He um, was given a tape recorder in public housing and he did a, a show called Ghetto Life 101. He was like 18 years old when he won a Peabody or something like that. And I had, Lee Allen came to my classes, my research classes at the University of Illinois all the time. And people would say to him, how do you get those great interviews? How do you do that? He said, well, I always wanted to be an interviewer. I used to pretend, you know, this is Dan Rather. But, but, but he said at the same time, all I do is listen and then I say, why? Why? Say more. You know, and, and he, you have that sense of presence, not, you know. And so he'd always say, well, what else? Who else? And, and my students were blown away by him. My students were PhD students, you know, learning how to do interviewing. And he'd say, never, ever rely on Q&A. It's never, it's never the way to go. You just listen and get into it. And he said, it's a relationship. It's a relationship. Mm -hmm. And so that's another problem I have is that some of the folks I've had on, I know them so well. We have such a long-standing relationship that we can take too much for granted. Mm -hmm. and, and then you have to kind of step back and say, well, what's the listener hearing? What right. does that mean? Yeah. You have to evoke that that thing that teachers used to say, there are no dumb questions, mm. to assume that, you know, you, you, we always have to assume that our listeners are as smart as they are because they are all as smart as a whip, but the context is also always important. You know, uh, that very concept, that very idea, the way I say it to my graduate students who are writing research papers and research projects, I always say, as a writer, my assumption is my reader is a little bit smarter than I am because I never want to talk down to them. But at the same time, they don't know anything about this world that I'm talking about. So I can't have shortcuts. I can't say, well, as John Dewey would say, well, who the hell is John Dewey? Right. I mean, what are you talking about? So you have to kind of assume an intelligence that you know is there, but you also have to not make shortcuts and, and get lost in your own internal kind of way of thinking right the there was one thing that crystal laura said in your interview with her episode two uh she said that once she began taking classes with you and your approach being that the personal and the political cannot be separated she mentioned that she started to find a huge community of like-minded people uh working on the same things uh to learn from and to, and to work with can you say a little bit more about that? Sure, because when people go to get a PhD um, in any discipline, I'm sure, but the, certainly in the world of education and in the world of practical um, work in the world, um, there's this sense, now I'm a PhD student, I have to be lofty. I have to be smart in ways that I don't think I'm smart. I have to perform being an intellectual. And there's this sense, and then you get caught up in a, in, a, in a culturalization process where you're being, you know, um, kind of inducted into the world of intellectual scholarship. And it sounds, it sounds lofty, it sounds distant. And one of the things that was always characterized my teaching was, number one, the people with the problems are the people with the solutions, that you don't need to have this 
crew come in from the outside. You need to unlock the wisdom in the room. But secondly, that you can do decent, hard, important scholarly work, drawing on your own experience, deepening your own experience, but drawing on it. And you don't have to perform doctoral dissertation work in some kind of abstract, distanced way. You can get up close. And what Crystal did, I mean, when she first wrote a paper for me in my first, the first seminar she took with me, and she got, she got criticized for being too formalistic. You, you know, you say things like, Chicago schools are in need of reform, and then you have six citations. You don't need citations. You know it. You can say it. You mm-hmm. can use your own voice. When you begin to use your own voice and you begin to talk from a first-person perspective, initially in graduate school, that can blow people's minds. But what Crystal eventually did is she invented a whole methodology for her study, she it was kind of she called it um, sister scholar. She she was studying her brother. She was doing an auto ethnography of her family. Well, what a great thing to kind of delve into all the various methods that are out there to do qualitative or interpretive research. Put them together: some personal essay, some oral history, some intimate conversations, some critical ethnography. You put them together and you call it sister scholar. Wow, what a great kind of thing for her to do. So Crystal was a, a force of nature, and she wrote a brilliant, brilliant book, which we talked about, um, called Being Bad, My Baby Brother. Speaking of books, uh, one of the things that I've learned uh, and been reminded of through this process working with you is that I need to read more. You know, I, I have two kids, two small kids who take up a lot of my time and energy. I have a job. I do, you know, I often we make all these excuses as to why in 2020 a lot of people aren't reading. But there is a wealth of knowledge contained in the books mentioned, you know, in, in the book of book segments and, and just, you know, conversations that you referenced I, I will say thank thank you well, thank for reminding you. me I appreciate that. to do my homework and, and, and for giving me a reading list. I appreciate Because I'm definitely going to attack it. You know, that's funny because as a professor for many years, and I was teaching teachers always, and one of the things I would ask people who were becoming teachers, I would always do this early in the term. I would say, what's the last novel you read? What's the last popular book on science you read? What's the last biography you read? What's the last book of history that you read? And so on. And I would ask like 12 questions like that. And the answer was always, I don't have time. I don't have time to read novels. What's the last book of poetry you read? Uh, Yesterday, uh, the American poet um, Louise Glick won the Nobel Prize for poetry. So I'm going to tell all my students, okay, go read a book of Louise Glick's poetry. I mean, I don't know her work. Why don't I learn about it? So the world is big and expansive. Let's learn about it. But what I'm saying about this, um, me asking teachers what they're reading, they always said I don't have time. But I would say, do you want your kids, your students, to read a wide range of literature for a variety of purposes? Oh, yeah, I want that for them. If you don't have it for you, how can you want it for them? You, you began by saying you got two little kids. You want them to read widely. You want them to go to books to get answers. You want them to go to books to pose questions. Well, how can you not be reading? And in a way, how can you not be writing? I mean, one of the great things is not just helping your kids with the homework, but having your kids watch you 
be a reader, be a writer, be a thinker, be an activist. That's where they pick it up. It's interesting. I, as you were giving that answer, I started thinking about something that you've said, a recurring theme that you've evoked, um, and that's that under the tree we have the ability to recognize the moment that we're in and name it and then unleash our, our radical imaginations to create new possibilities. And, and when you're talking about kids and teaching kids and, and, and children learning, one thing I've recently noticed my youngest, my, my son doing, is that he likes to name things. Mm. He likes to reiterate when he, founds, when he finds out the name of a new item or object or person. He's very repetitive. Love he's that. naming it. He's, yeah. he's telling himself and he's telling the people around him, this is what it's I see. It's an amazing thing to watch kids do that, isn't it? Yeah. I love that. And I, I just think it's important for, for us to kind of take cues from that as adults, you know? Like, we are often told what we are looking at or what we are experiencing. Uh, and to just take a step back and name it for ourselves, um, I think is important. And, and and so I wanted to also ask you, um, you know, we, we've both learned a lot during this process. Uh, the first podcast that I started by myself uh, was not during a pandemic uh, it was recorded mostly in a professional studio at a college radio station. Um, so I'm sure most of our listeners have heard us go through some of our struggles with, yes. with sound design. It's, it's tough. During a pandemic, trying to record remotely, yeah. sound design is, is, uh, is a bit, bit more tough. But looking forward, um, I'm excited we found a, a new space. Um, we found some, some different grooves that we're going to get into. So, uh, what about you? What are you What are you looking forward to? Well, I guess I've been thinking about a couple of things. Um, I've been thinking about um, who who else we ought to have on because, you know, one of the things we realized right from the beginning, you and I, is that when we talk about a seminar on freedom, we're talking about an expansive concept. We're not talking about something that you have a seminar, you define it, and then you move on to the next thing. It's huge. Freedom is a layered ever-unfolding dynamic concept you can't pin it down and that's part of the fun of it but i think that we ought to also remind ourselves we're talking about liberation we're talking about enlightenment let's keep circling back around that and that's our kind of lodestar and then we keep circling it but at the same time we can go in so many different directions and then i've been thinking it's a seminar so let's also recognize that when we talk we've never done a session on math We've never done anything on arithmetic. And I keep coming back to you, not only as an organist. Might we lose listeners if we do a math uh, No, I think actually, I think if we put math or science in the context of a seminar on freedom, I think we could learn a lot. And so there's a lot on my mind around this. Mm -hmm. Um, You know, there's a big movement in kind of the, the reactionary parts of education to only focus on math and science, but they do it in the narrowest way. I know some mathematicians and scientists who do it in a mind-blowing way. So let's 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 go there. Let's think about that. Um, the other thing is that because you're an organizer and because you're the father of two young kids, you're an explorer of the world too. So you're watching your kid, for example, name things. And what I love about kids is the inventiveness of it and the courage of it. And you just wish that you could bottle that two-year-old, three-year-old curiosity, courage, willingness to just try to say things, you know, bumble along until you put it together. 
And, and that's a, a great, great quality and something that we shouldn't lose by going to school. I used to say kids show up at school, an exclamation point and a question mark. And by the time they leave school, they're a simple period. Mm. That's messed up. Yeah. That's messed up. We want them to still be an exclamation point and a question mark. How do you do that? Well, we got to return to that and, and keep thinking about that. But I'm thinking of a zillion things going forward, people I want to have on. You said to me recently, let's have more artists. I agree with that. And not just not just artists who are scholars of art, but people who are performing and doing the art. So, yeah, let's go in that direction. Let's get a lot more people who are not only fighting in education, but fighting in healthcare for freedom, fighting for freedom um, in the world of housing and the unhoused. I think those are things we got to just plan to get to. Yeah. This process has revealed um, some some parallels between the time that you spent with your boots on the ground organizing and what's going on right now. So I hope we can definitely find space to to dig into some of those things and yeah and make them relevant for I think for today. we can I think we can and you know one of the things that I've again I've thought about for a long time is that you can people can make too big a deal about generations like you can say you know you're a generation of the 60s I'm not a generation of the 60s I don't remember anybody in late 1969 saying oh hell it's almost over let's go get high I mean you don't live by decades you don't live by generations like that in fact we're all part of this generation. You're a young person, young father, young organizer, young student. I'm an older person. But you know, the thing that's astonishing, if you look out in the world, if you and I go out for a walk later, every human being we see on the street will be gone within 100 years. Mm -hmm. Me, for sure. You, for sure. Mm -hmm. But even that little kid on the street will be gone. So we're sharing a magic moment. Let's name that moment. Let's share that moment. And let's interact in a way that we can have an impact on that moment. Let's not live in the past. Let's not be nostalgic for a ship that already left the shore. But let's also not be fantasizing. Let's actually put our boots on the ground right now. Thank you, Bill. I'm, uh, I'm looking forward to continuing this, this project. Hi, right, Malik. I appreciate you. So this is Malik Alim. I'm joined by Bill Ayers and we have David Stovall back. And I wanted to get them together to touch base about something that we heard the president uh, talk about recently. Um, he gave an address uh, at the National Archives, um, basically uh, establishing that a lot of the um, uh, work that has come out uh, recently around critical race theory, um, the history of uh, black Americans in this uh, in this country uh, through the 1619 projects and other works as related to critical race theory. He has been trying to delegitimize those things. So I wanted to touch base with you all to kind of uh, hear how this information lands on you all as educators and and uh, and teachers and scholars. Yeah, I think this is a really important moment. And I think having David Stovall with us is critical because Dave has written extensively and taught extensively um, off, the, off the paradigm of critical race theory. And clearly what the president is doing is saying all the critical 
lenses, whether it's Howard Zinn, the 1619 Project, or the very well-developed critical race theory, this is a challenge to white supremacy, and he's not having it. He wants to go back there. So, Dave, yeah. can you talk a bit about, about critical race theory and where, um, where, you see the, where you see this struggle being engaged right now? Right. I mean, well, I think one of the things, and thank you all again for having me on. So one of the things with critical race theory is this idea around racism being endemic to life in the United States. And what we mean by being endemic, being foundational, right? So if we look at the Constitution, if we look at the three-fifths clause, if we look at the Electoral College, these are all processes to empower white landowners and their power over black bodies, indigenous bodies, uh, Asian bodies, Latinx bodies. And the rationale is this idea of sovereign white maleness to be the purveyor of all things and all things being centered in Western Europe. And the problem with this, and we saw this early on, well, not early on, about 40 years ago with E.D. Hirsch, when he would talk about things like a cultural, uh, what he, call, he didn't call it cultural competency. He had a different name for it, cultural literacy. Right. And when he talked about cultural literacy, he was talking about this, how much we knew about Western Europe. And that's to this day still what we're tested on. So critical race theory says, wait, we have to be clear around the founding of the United States around genocide, slavery and wrongful land appropriation. These three components are critical. They are foundational to life as we know it here in the Western Hemisphere. And critical race theory says that even in this reality, we still have to contend with something that's referred to as interest convergence. And the interest convergence is the argument that the larger white mainstream society will only approve racial justice to the extent that it still advantages larger mainstream white society. Right. And this becomes and Derek Bell identifies this in a couple of pieces in one in his landmark book, Race, Racism and American Law. But then another book called Faces in the Bottom of the Well, where he talks about the United States only engaged in a broader project of racial justice because black people being attacked by dogs, being hosed down by fire departments, being beaten by police departments was being broadcast across the world. And starting with Dwight D. Eisenhower, then to Kennedy, then to Nixon, to Ford, to Carter, Reagan, and Bush one, these were the images that the United States did not want to see because they, they positioned themselves as the moral authority of the world. So now because they were also the economic power of the world. So critical race theory says we only see those small or very glacial advances toward racial justice because they did not want their image to be tainted in the broader world. So if we get that to this current moment and we understand this racial reckoning, here again is another attempt by the Trump administration to erase what we know to be real, right? That the United States in its foundation, 
in slavery, genocide and wrongful land appropriation will still try to defend itself and say that it was not foundational, but only a brief moment. But if we look at things like the 13th, 14th and 15th Amendment, we see that slavery has only ended except for punishment. Right. For a crime. Right. That's the language of the 13th Amendment. We know in the 14th Amendment with the death of Ruth Bader Ginsburg that all classifications in the United States in terms of people do not have equal protection under the law. And then in the 15th Amendment and what we're going to see in the next 40 days in terms of the, con the contestation of the right to vote, which Trump has now flipped and said, this is going to further derail voting when we've never seen in the history of the United States large base voter fraud. Right. But again, it is a protectionist move to say if the results do not come out in his favor, he will now again resort to this space around contesting these rights. So critical race theory is saying what we're seeing in the Trump administration is a continuation of the long arm of white supremacy. And we have to be clear about that. And if we are not clear, we will be fooled again. Some folks, not everybody. I want to read a few of President Trump's comments from this address that I'm referring to. Uh, he said, critical race theory, the 1619 project and the crusade against American history is toxic propaganda, ideological poison that if not removed, will dissolve the civic bonds that tie us together. It will destroy our country. Uh, and then further, um, under our leadership, the National Endowment for the Humanities has awarded a grant to support the development of a pro-American curriculum that celebrates the truth about our nation's great history. And so I just wanted to get your responses to that. How do you, what do you make of that? Again, uh, this idea of whitewashing what we know to be real, right? What does it mean to say America's great history? According to whom? And critical race theory says, exactly, according to white people in power. So if you're going to tell, and, and the you know, African proverb comes so clear, right? In terms of this current moment. And the African proverb goes, until the lion becomes the writer of history, the story will always glorify the hunter, right? So this thing around really putting that into its current context, right? So this is again, this idea of, we want people to center themselves in a hopeful strategy when we know that there have been all these barriers to actually allow folks to claim hopefulness, joy, or happiness. And now this idea that we can pivot and say that we only want something that glorifies what we're trying to do now disallows for any form of critique. Right. And then in this case, not only disallowing critique, but now claiming it as a bold faced lie. Right. And I think when we see quotes like this, or when we see the idiot speak in the way that he does. Now we have to put into context 
what this means over time and what he is actually fearful of if people get a more nuanced and layered understanding of history. And an honest understanding. I mean, I think that what's interesting when Trump says, when Trump says we have to teach the truth to kids, I want to say amen. And the truth includes the, not only the enslavement, then the afterlife of slavery, Jim Crow, mass incarceration, and so on. And you mentioned the great Derek Bell, um, who really founded critical race theory in the law. And what Derek Bell pointed out is that every law is tinged with race. There's nothing, it can be race neutral in its language, but race is right there. I mean, so, so you take the poll tax. They didn't say black people can't vote. They said you have to pay a certain amount of money to vote. Here in Florida, we're seeing the poll tax reinvented for the modern era, but they don't say it's about race. They simply say, pay your fines and fees, and then you can vote. Say another word about Derrick Bell and the great contribution, and then move it over to education and how right. critical race theory came to education. Yeah, so when we think about Derrick Bell, and what Derrick Bell wrote, which is considered to be the first major text in critical race theory, some people refer to it as the critical race theory Bible, it's, it's, called, it's a book called Race, Racism, and American Law. And what he looked at was how race is imbued in things like housing and housing and employment and what Derek Bell was responding to. And, it, and again, this is kind of a point where when the president's memo came from the Office of Budget talking about removing critical race theory in the 1619 project, there was an earlier document that actually accused critical race theory of being Marxist. Right. And critical race theory comes out of a critique of Marxism, right? So there was a form of scholarship in law schools called critical legal studies that said that the law and the criminal legal system is a class-based system. Derrick Bell said it is not only a class-based system, but it is also a race-based system. It is a gender-based system. It is an ability-based system. It is a language-based system. So now when we put race and all those things that is connected to in the mix, now we need to t pay attention to this differently. And he also enters the, con the, um, the concept of interest convergence. So when his law students begin to read race, racism, and American law, they actually have a conference at the University of Wisconsin-Madison in 1989 where we first hear the term critical race theory and that it was their discussion and interpretation of all the people who were joining in in Derrick Bell's critique of critical legal studies. 1995, Gloria Latson Billings and Bill Tate write a article for Teachers College Record called Towards a Critical Race Theory of Education. And what they talk about in this is if we know that the law is also a race based system, then if the law governs schools, then we should also understand the ways in which race is central to our understanding of curriculum, pedagogy and then content. So if we have a race based critical legal system, race based criminal legal system, then an education system that is also bound to these laws is also deeply imbued in indoctrinating young folks 
to these ideas that Trump is now mentioning in this conference and hence the problem. So now critical race theory says that this critique is critical because we have instances before anybody's heard anything about critical race theory around the stories, realities and lives and layers of people who have contributed to this land being completely erased. So critical race. So Lori Latson Billings and Bill Tate write this article actually continuing the work, seeing themselves as continuing the work of folks like Septima Clark, Marcus Garvey and Carter G. Woodson, who were saying that there is a problem here in the United States and we've been positioned as the problem. And yet the people who have positioned us as the problem have no critique and understanding of their contribution to the current moment. So now when we think about critical race theory and how it transitions into education, it's the same thing in terms of what does it mean to contest the lies that have been given to young folks in cities, in rural areas that many of them reject. And if we think about social studies and myself as a social studies educator, I always say, well, look, the goal of social studies under white supremacy is to bore you to death. It is to bore you to the extent that you will reject it. And it will bore you because you reject it because you are not reflected in it. There is no story of your contribution. And when you reject it, now there's the greater chance that you will never challenge it. And that's what that's the intervention that critical race theory makes in education. You know, the, uh, the you mentioned Gloria Ladson Billings, a good friend and, and comrade of yours and mine. Um, Gloria later talking about critical race theory and policy. Gloria wrote a brilliant, I think, germinal text um, where she said there is no such thing as an education gap, which is the popular policy thing. Blacks and whites have different uh, test scores on the standardized tests, and that's an education gap. She says there is no gap. There's an education debt. And she begins to put forward the notion of reparations in the world of education. And this is, what, 15 years ago. Mm -hmm. um, very important article. And now, of course, reparations has moved itself into the mainstream. Mm -hmm. Let me ask you another question, David. We talked last time about here we are looking at the Supreme Court. I've never thought it's been very unusual in the history of the United States that the Supreme Court has any kind of a progressive you know, aspect. And I think people... Uh, get caught up in the idea that the Supreme Court is the arena of struggle. It's never really been the arena of struggle. It's reacted to certain things. But when we talked last time, we talked a bit about Brown v. Board of Education. And um, some people listening thought that um, we got confused and that, uh, and that we were kind of endorsing Plessy versus Ferguson. Maybe you say a word right. about Plessy and about right. Brown 1 and Brown 2. Right. And I think it's important and I'm glad that we're engaged in this type of rejoinder because I want to be clear about something. It was and Derek Bell again writes about this in a very important book called Gospel Choirs. And in Gospel Choirs, he talks about when he was working for the NAACP Legal Defense Fund. And this is after Brown II in 1955, where they're going to districts throughout the South, developing plans to desegregate. As he was talking to black residents in the South, 
they were telling him that the issue wasn't to go to these particular schools, but the issue was for us to actually have those same resources and access to those resources. And if that meant us going to the same school, then it can't be this wanton or very uh, narrow interpretation of the decision. So if we go back to Plessy, Plessy says that when someone is in a space and has been identified, despite what the lack of resources are, things will be understood as separate but equal, right? So this actually regulated segregation by way of federal mandate. What folks were arguing in Brown was that that was unconstitutional based on the various, the preamble and the various amendments, right? So now, if we think about that process, there were a group of plaintiffs and a lot of, a lot of folks, we don't talk about this as much, but remember the Brown case had a number of plaintiffs. And in those, those plaintiffs were arguing that because separate but equal is not constitutional, we should have access to the same resources that are provided to white residents in their particular schools. Now, when Brown 2 comes about, and again, Brown 1 says the Plessy v. Ferguson decision, separate but equal, is unconstitutional. Brown 2 says here is the way that states will interpret and enforce the understanding that separate was not unequal. And there was never an intent by states to integrate, right? So if we think about this very simply in terms of history, if we go back to the Little Rock Nine, why are they called the Little Rock Nine? It was nine of them supposedly integrating a school of 1,500, right? What, what, what is the expectation there but for them to be met with hostility and racialized violence? So now if we start to think about, well, what would integration actually look like and why in every case from 1955 to 1980, we never saw a group of white students displaced into a predominantly black school. So now what we're talking about is three things. One, the argument was for access, equal access to resources. Two, the state was the state that was engaged in racialized violence and terror were now given the responsibility of desegregating this particular group and being in compliance with that decision. And then three, the idea of the state actually the the actual engagers and and purveyors of racialized violence and terror with the expectation for them to integrate at any level that would remote that would remotely represent equity is absurd. So now when they actually were, were chosen to integrate schools, this idea always became the preservation of white bodies and the moving of children of color into these quote unquote all right schools to experience deeper racialized violence and terror. Now, without going into 
all of it. We also we we know about the Prince Williams County case where they shut down schools for two years because they didn't want black folks in schools. We know about California where cities created their own school districts so that black children could not attend those schools. Right. Black and Latinx children could not attend those schools. So now when we think about this, I think we have to think about the layers. Right. And the argument never was about sitting next to white kids in schools. The argument was we should have equitable access to the resources that we have structurally been denied and still denied in the second Brown decision. Right. And I think there's a uh, the articulation in gospel choirs and then Charles Ogletree's with all deliberate speed actually speaks to this. And then thirdly, Noliwe Rooks Rooks's book, Cutting School, also has a very important story uh, about this. Yeah, we, we put Nolowe Rooks's book on our book of books, a uh, very important piece. But, you know, without getting into all of it, I mean, I think Brown II, the, the second decision in 1955, I've always called that the assassin, because once you give the white supremacists the right to, uh, you know, the power to figure out how to desegregate when they've been the segregationists all along is absurd. But my experience in Cleveland, in Detroit, in New York, in Chicago, has been that black parents, generation after generation, have fought for an education for their kids. If it means sitting next to a white kid, they want that. If it means community control of the schools, they want that. If it means going to a Black Panther Academy, they want that. But people want an education and they see it as a value. And the fight to resist recognizing the full humanity of African-American families and kids and then providing uh, a fair and decent education. It's not even just resources. Let's say equitable education, you know, the, a, a decent facility, a fully trained teacher, mm -hmm. uh, you know, a, a curriculum that looks forward, not, you know, not kind of inside your belly button. Mm -hmm. I mean, those things are, uh, are what people have fought for again and again. I think we're still fighting for them. Yeah, and, and, and to actually continue that point, I think this is always the case because what I really appreciate about Noliwe Rooks's book, she talks about a group of young folks in South Carolina who actually organized themselves as 16 and 17 year olds. And they were talking about accountability in the tax system to see that their funds actually got to them. Right. So this idea of actually making sure that the dollars that were actually stripped from their district were actually kept in their district, right? And I think this, this point, and a lot of people think about that as the minutia of the case, but that's really the key point, right? This idea that there was taxation without representation, right? That tax funds were being siphoned from districts when folks were seeing literally that what they were trying to do were being taken away. And then one last thing about, about desegregation, and I actually worked under the sociologist William Trent, who often talked about this, who was a, a student in, North, in Raleigh Durham schools in North Carolina. And he talked about one of the things that we have to think about in desegregation was that black principals and teachers were not allowed to teach in many of those white schools. In fact, they were made, they had to, some of those teachers and administrators had to work as custodial staff in some of those schools. So when we think about this, it's, it's important to put this in context and then look at the layers within that context. 
Yeah, I'm, so all of this historical content, context, I'm learning a lot. Uh, and, and so, I, you know, I often kind of go to the organizer point of view of things and, and, and I'm kind of want to bring it back to the president's comments and the idea that, um, you know, propaganda is, you know, literally being codified uh, into, you know, by a general order, uh, executive order um, from our president. Um, so I'm wondering as, um, you know, educational theorists, as political activists, uh, what is our recourse uh, to push back? Because, you know, my, my kind of uh, perspective on it is that already in schools we have a gross uh, under and, and non-acknowledgement um, of, of all of these uh, things that we're talking about. So what, what, do we, what is our recourse? What, what can we do to make sure that the truth, the real truth, is taught in our schools to our children? Right. And thank you for that, because that that is that is the crux of the issue. And I think one of the things that we can do is actually go right back to the actual historical record. Right. So, you know, the Illinois State Board of Education always talks about young people being able to use primary sources. So let's go back to those primary sources. Right. Let's read Columbus's ship log. Right. Let's read the Constitution. Right. And then let's read the various interpretations of that Constitution. Let's let's read the dissents of the Supreme Court in opposed to the just the decisions. Right. So I think one of the ways when we think about political and movement based organizing is to really return to those historical records, because, again, in this in this moment, the data still remains on our side. Right. So now it's really about bringing that to the fold and saying, wait. What are we talking about here and how is this interpreted in this way? And one of the pieces I really like using is the uh, the lawyer and uh, labor activist John Powell often talks about the Electoral College and the founding of the Electoral College. And it's a really important piece because he uses the language of the framers of the Constitution to actually talk about why an electoral college was needed, right? And I think these are important spaces because it gets us away from the conjecture, right? It's not just, oh, you're wrong, I'm right. Let's go back to the record. And I think that's what white supremacy fears the most. White supremacy fears its own record, right? Hence this attempt to obfuscate it, right? So I think it's important for us to go back to those records, to go back to those documents and now have a different discussion when when we're confronted with things like this these comments from Trump or the US Conference on History or whatever conservative right wing body is coming to actually dislodge us and trying to de delegitimate us. I think Dave is absolutely right. I think you're absolutely right, David. And I think that um, the truth is always contested. And I think that that that's to our great advantage because we are interested in the truth. So go to the sources, go to the documents, tell the true story of what happened and, and what its meaning was. And I think it is a, a wake up call to many people. One of the things we should note though, is that the White House Conference on American History, Donald Trump and his, um, the movement that he uh, is, the, is the representative of and, that, and the right wing white supremacist movement that is mobilized in this country, in many ways, they exaggerate 
the, the influence of critical race theory. They exaggerate the influence of the Howard Zinn project or the 1619 project in order to say, oh, we're, you know, we're losing our country and, and, and you know, uh, the barbarians are at the gate. They over-exaggerate it, but at the same time, it feels to me like a last gasp. That doesn't mean it's not dangerous. That doesn't mean that it's not toothless um, or that it is toothless. It means that they are on the defensive, appropriately so, because they know the truth is not to their advantage. Yeah, let's, uh, let's close it out with some final thoughts. Well, I mean, I think this current moment we have been prepared for I think this current moment should not be a surprise. There's always the moment when you talk about living in expectations of certain things and there's always a different moment when it actually comes. And we are in this moment where it's actually come. And these days that our ancestors have prepared us for is here. And now we have to be willing to respond to that same charge that told us that anything that you believe in will require a fight. And we are deeply in that fight. And it's a fight that we cannot run from, but a fight that we have to welcome. And in the welcoming of that struggle, we have to be clear and get that clarity with each other. So when when they come, we're not just on the same page, but we're willing to defend each other when the attack comes. I just want to thank uh, David Stovall for joining us under the tree and dropping that knowledge on us. It's been as always, a real treat to have my friend and comrade Dave Stovall join Malik Alim and myself. Appreciate you both. Uh, talk soon. We got this comment from a listener responding to our conversation about voting. In my view, we're not faced with the lesser of two evils. We're faced with the consolidation of power by fascist elements who've already begun dismantling democracy and unleashing a fascist popular base. History shows us that they will be able to destroy democracy irretrievably if they have four more years in power and if we don't resist. Americans tend to disbelieve that this can happen here, but we've accommodated to each incremental step since the Patriot Act. I don't need to catalog this to you. I'll just flag a few symptoms whipping up racist violence and supporting armed white supremacist militias, loosing unidentified federal police and apparatus to detain peaceful protesters against the will of local authorities, detaining tens of thousands of immigrants in camps despite COVID threats, undoing the environmental and social gains of the last 30 years, lying about the climate threat and undoing whatever was done to restrain the fossil fuel industry while turning the U.S into a rogue state in the international community. That said, this is the hour to step up and prevent the full onset of fascism. And fascism is a whole different political system from democratic capitalism. It's not just a more evil version of the same thing. To prevent fascist consolidation, we must be working to build a united coalition, a front, And we must recognize that at this particular historical moment, this means doing everything in our power to ensure that Trump is not elected, and that means Biden is elected. We move on from there. 
Considering the decathlon we've just run, send us your observations on the podcast thus far. Your suggestions, comments, advice, counsel, tips, critiques, assessments, attacks, unnecessary ad hominems if you must, and over-extravagant compliments that you can think up. Especially that last piece. Any accolades or praise you can offer would be most welcome because we're much, much more fragile than you might think. Thanks to friends and comrades from the brilliant podcast Ergo, Damon Williams and Daniel Kissinger, producers, teachers, and mentors, and to Malik Alim, valued and irreplaceable comrade in arms. Our music is by Tom, the Night Watchman Morella. Artwork is designed by Ryan Alexander Tanner. Check out his website, ohyesverynice.com. Thanks for being here. With joy in my heart and freedom on my mind. Until next time. <laughs>